Welcome to the Lavender Woman's Podcast. Thank you for joining a group of people determined to become more refined, grace-filled, and graceful, purpose-filled, and purposeful. Each episode, we recite an affirmation and we plant seeds of lavender. Not sure what that means? It's simple. We take that seed of lavender, usually one word, and we water and nurture it until it takes root and begins to grow and manifest in our lives. Light a candle, rub on some essential oils, and grab a notebook. We're about to get started. Today is Juneteenth, Freedom Day, a day of recognition, restoration, and celebration. Please take time today to reflect and honor our ancestors. Use today to educate yourself and learn your history. Then walk like you have hundreds of thousands of ancestors walking behind you, holding you up. Because you do. Our work is not done. We are completing the work they began hundreds of years ago. And I don't feel no ways tired. How about you? Hello, 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 and welcome back to another episode of the Lavender Woman's Podcast. How have you all been doing? Listen, we have been juggling so many things um, in our personal lives and the world across the nation right now. And I just want to check in and make sure that you guys have been um, implementing your self-care. You've been drinking your water. You've been taking care of yourselves because we have a lot of stuff to cover in this episode. Um the wellness series. Can we talk about it for a second? It was such a success. I'm so grateful for all of our special guests during that series. Miss um, Andrea Clary, who came in with our self-care episode. My good friend, soon to be Dr. Janae Garrett. She came in and taught us the difference between surviving and thriving. And then my mentor, Christina Rice, she gave us the real deal on what wellness really is, especially for black women and women of color. This week, we have a little bit, we have stuff to talk about that's a little bit heavier, but it needs to be talked about. We are going to have a discussion about some very necessary topics, and I have a special guest that is going to help me lay that out for you guys because I could not do this episode alone. This week's guest is Mr. Eric T. Wilson. Mr. Wilson is a teacher with the Hampton City Schools. He has been a classroom teacher for more than a decade and currently serves as the instructional leader for the Department of Social Studies and Senior Class Advisor at Bethel High School. In 2020, he was named as Hampton City Schools High School Teacher of the Year. His passion for education comes from his desire to service the youth in the community, the same community which was pivotal in his formal education. Mr. Wilson is both a resident of the city of Hampton and a graduate of Hampton City Schools. The oldest of two children to Mr. Alvin Wilson and Mrs. Janice C. Wilson, both of Hampton, Virginia, Mr. Eric Wilson completed his undergraduate degree of study at Howard University in Washington, D.C., earning a B.A. in history. 
After a year of teaching at elementary level, he decided to pursue graduate studies, earning a master's from the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Upon completion of his graduate degree, he returned back to Hampton Roads and became an elementary school teacher at an Achievable achievable Dream Academy in Newport News, Virginia. The following year, he relocated to Detroit, Michigan, where he worked for Detroit Public Schools at Damon J. Keith Elementary School. Mr. Wilson decided to transition to higher education, working for The Ohio State University of Minority Affairs as a program coordinator. In this position, he organized and facilitated workshops for students, parents, and community stakeholders of Toledo Public Schools, assisting them with post-secondary opportunities and information on attending The Ohio State University. The Great Recession in 2006 forced Mr. Wilson's return home, where his current tenure with Hampton Schools. Since then, he has taught courses in world history, advanced placement, world history, African-American studies, and Virginia and United States history at both Hampton High School and Bethel High School, respectively. Mr. Wilson is a member and faithful servant of St. James United Methodist Church of Hampton, where he serves as chairperson of the Committee for Equity and Diversity. He also holds the position as the vice president of the Howard University Alumni Association of the Hampton Roads and an active member of the Ohio State University Association Historic Triangle. Mr. Wilson spends much of his free time reading, but one of his favorite hobbies is running. To date, he has completed 37 full marathons, nine ultra marathons, and countless half marathons. Lavender Women, I introduce to you our special guest co-host for this episode, Mr. Eric T. Wilson. Mr. Wilson, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on today. How is everyone? We are doing great. I'm so glad to have you here. Um, for those who don't know, Mr. Wilson was my daughter's um, honors Inc. honors history teacher this past school year. She thoroughly enjoyed his class. She talked about it every single day. Um, so he's a great teacher. Um, we developed that teacher-parent um relationship during the school year and when I was thinking about this particular topic and this particular conversation I was like who better to ask than Mr. Wilson and I asked and you accepted and I'm so glad you did because I couldn't do this episode alone. <laughs> well thank you thank you it's, it's truly an honor um, and I'm deeply humbled but thank you and def- definitely that's how we have to tell our history we have to share our history so that it can be told and not just told by others but told by us and told the right way. So thank you again. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for accepting and for joining us. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Okay. So we have some things that we need to talk about and we are literally going to lay the foundation for some pretty heavy but necessary topics. The first thing we want to talk about, this is airing on Juneteenth. So we have to make sure that we discussed this. Um, I want to make sure that our listeners know all there is to know that we can discuss in the episode, at least, about Juneteenth. I did an episode last year with another teacher from um, Bethel High School, Miss Olivia Cochran, and the entire episode was geared to and dedicated towards Juneteenth. We're going to do Juneteenth in combination with some other topics in this episode, but it will be remiss of me not to talk about it 
on its actual day. So Juneteenth defined, if you were talking to someone who has no idea what it is, how would you explain or define Juneteenth to that person? See, that's a great question. And before I kind of get into it, let me just share a personal story. Um, about, I don't know, I guess it's maybe about 10 years ago, I actually mm-hmm. traveled to Dallas, Texas. Okay. Uh, first time going to Texas in my life. And me and some friends, when I first landed, I was like, hey, I'm hungry. Let's go get some food. So we ended up in a Cracker Barrel. Mm. And once we sat down, uh, we sat down and our server came over, who was a African-American woman and she said to us happy Juneteenth and I kind of looked at her I was like I have no idea what you're talking about I'm East Coast you know what is Juneteenth Mm -hmm. and even I will say as a history major you know a lot of people find that very disturbing say you didn't know what Juneteenth is as a history major like no I didn't and what people have to understand is traditionally Juneteenth has always kind of been recognized in Texas Mm. but now because of so many of the uh, the great accomplishments that African Americans have done yes, our, our celebrations need to be noted globally they need to be they noted do. nationwide absolutely they definitely do. so, but, and I always encourage people, you know, after I left that space uh, and got a little more clarity about what Juneteenth was, I went back home to my hotel, or went back to the hotel, and I researched Juneteenth, and I started reading more about it and got an understanding about it. So I just always like to put that out there, too, to say that, you know, Juneteenth wasn't something that we learned here on the East Coast. Right. Yeah, it definitely was something that wasn't taught in, right. It wasn't something that I learned in school either. We never discussed Juneteenth in any of my um, educational years. I didn't really get into it deeply until adulthood. And it's something that now I'm very passionate about. It's something that I have instilled in my children and I've researched and read with them about it because I want them to know the real history and not kind of the whitewashed history that we get sometimes. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, for the readers, Juneteenth marks uh, the date when basically when the Emancipation Proclamation was read in Galveston, Texas. So it actually was order number three that was issued by Union General, I think Gordon Granger is his name, when he traveled to Galveston, Texas with Union forces. And on June 19th of 1865, that is basically when uh, African Americans received word that slavery was no more and they would be free in these United States. Now, it's also very important to note that uh, June 19th, 1865, basically came more than two years after uh, Lincoln's issue of the Emancipation Proclamation. So, and that's something right. very important that people need to understand is, you know, again, especially when I talk with young people, we didn't have internet, we didn't have email, we did not have Snapchat. Uh, so basically the ability to get information rapidly was not common. So basically, yes, it did take time for news to travel. So basically, two and a half years later, on June 19th, 1865, is when slaves in Texas got word that slavery was over and they would be free. And that was something very interesting that I learned in the episode that I did last year with Ms. Cochran. So I didn't realize that it came literally like years later um, before the word actually spread. And I thought it just thought about how challenging that must have been to have actually been free, but not to have even known that you were. Absolutely. Right. Indeed. And um, 
even, you know, we have ties here to uh, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation right here at Hampton University with Emancipation Oaks. Yes, and, yes, we um, do. And it's something that always when I bring anybody who comes here to town or even when I talk to my students about the significance of Emancipation Oaks. And I want to make a footnote here because I definitely want to talk about the importance of HBCUs at some point in this conversation as well. Absolutely. And those new listeners, HBCUs are historically black colleges and universities. Right. Um, but getting back to Hampton University, Hampton University is... Uh, the land-grant institution where Emancipation Oak sits. And in 1863, basically, it's where the Emancipation Proclamation was first read to Negroes here in Hampton. Mm -hmm. So it's very important. So not only does Hampton University have a significant role in uh, in African-American history, um, all of our HBCUs here, but I think it's so pivotal because those of us who live here in Hampton Roads in this region, you know, we have so much African-American history right here in our backyard. And the best thing about it is free. Exactly. Free charge, it is. It is. My great aunt, um, she was born in 1930. She attended Hampton University back when it was Hampton Institute. And she always <laughs> shared she always shared that with me um, about the Emancipation Oak and the, the culture and the history that is here in Hampton, Virginia. And I know last year we celebrated uh, the commemorative 400th year of the um, African landing here in Fort Monroe at right. Fort Comfort. So we, that was last year. Yes, yes. And that's a, another very pivotal uh, point. I will definitely uh, have to give shout outs to the Project 1619 uh, people who work tirelessly with that. And I don't know, a lot of people don't know, but a lot of their work um, started back in like 2015, 2015, because mm -hmm. they were building up to the 400 year commemoration of 1619, which all where they rolled out everything in 2019, but they did a lot of programs um, and had a lot of events leading up to that 400 year anniversary. And one of the people who were really instrumental in that, somebody who is a close family friend, professor over at Norfolk State, Dr. Kalita Fairfax. Mm -hmm. um, and for those of those people in the area who know her, they know that she's a wonderful resource, wonderful jewel, she's a scholar. Um, and she too is a product of Howard University, so I must always throw that out there. But yeah, <laughs> so much history, so much, yeah. <laughs> shameless plug there, shameless plug. It's okay, um, it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, so much history, and we have a plethora of resources and um, people and and uh, venues here in this area. I love it. I love the area. We really do. It's such a rich, like you said, the area is such, um, it's so rich in history. It, we, If you don't know it, it's just a choice because it's everywhere you look. Um, even Aberdeen Gardens, there's so much history there. So the history is all around us. We just have to be willing to take the time to learn about it. Yes, yes. And, you know, just kind of touching on some other things about Juneteenth, you know, um, and the importance of it and the relevance of it and why we're observing it is because many people need to understand about the Civil War. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, the Civil War was fought over slavery. Now, the Civil War was really fought over states' rights. Mm. That's really, you know, slavery was a, a piece of those states' rights. 
And as many of us know, basically states in the South, they basically wanted to uh, keep their slaves while the North was industrializing. So you had two different economic systems here. Basically, the South was really based on slave labor. So they needed slaves because much of the South was agriculture, right. sugar, raw materials. So uh, they, of course, wanted to continue use of that African labor, or in this case, African-Americans, because we talked about a couple of generations. So basically, the Civil War was uh, uh, over states' rights. And basically, of course, you know, you had two sides. You had the Union and the Confederacy, and the Civil War lasted from April of 1861 until April of 1865. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is why the Emancipation Proclamation is so important, because, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, you know, during the period of the Civil War, when President Lincoln at that time realized that, okay, the country needs to be pushed in a more industrialized direction. And uh, therefore, in order to uh, maintain the, I guess, sovereignty of the country, he really wanted to make sure that, uh, uh, (laughs) you know, the country was all together. So uh, basically, one of those ways was to push towards an industrialization. And he saw that, you know, slavery was something uh, that he understood that was necessary in the South. But basically, in order to push the country forward, we're going to have to turn a corner and go into another direction. Absolutely. Why do you think now? Because like we said, Juneteenth is something that has not been celebrated fully. It's been something that, in my opinion, has been overlooked. Why now? What what, what has shifted the change this year where we see large businesses and corporations actually um, having it as a paid holiday now for their staff? What changed? What has shifted to now have Juneteenth actually recognized on this level? Um, I think it's a lot of the fact that, you know, black folks, we're standing up and we're being recognized. Mm -hmm. Um, We won't be marginalized anymore. We won't be disenfranchised. And I think uh, people are realizing that we do have a voice now. And, you know, and I have this conversation with a lot of people because a lot of people, again, who, who are from the East Coast say, hey, well, why are we celebrating Juneteenth as a Texas holiday? And my response to them easily is like, well, hell, why do people celebrate Cinco de Mayo? You know, like you're not Mexican and Cinco de Mayo really isn't. And truth be told, Cinco de Mayo isn't even really an American anything. It's Mexico. Right. So again, so that's totally out of our jurisdiction. Um, Mm -hmm. And in the same breath, I tell some people, I say, you go out and you go have a good time and drink and party on St. Patrick's Day. Mm-hmm. What Irish ancestry do you have? I exactly. Mean, are you even Catholic? So it, it, it's a whole lot embedded in that. So, um, and that's another reason why you know, kind of justify or validate why we need to celebrate Juneteenth. It's because basically it is important to us. Mm-hmm. And I always remind people that you are not going to lessen our experiences and our history. Um, and that gets into something a little later we'll, we'll talk about. But yeah, great question. Great question. We, we're definitely going to talk about that a little bit later in the episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I yeah. hope that... I don't want to skip ahead too far. Exactly. 
So, like I said, there is an entire episode dedicated to Juneteenth only. Um, if you go back through the previous episodes, it's literally called Juneteenth, and it aired on June 19th of 2019 last year with an African-American study teacher, Olivia, Olivia Cochran. So, if you want to know more about Juneteenth, if you want to listen to that episode to have a better understanding of it, that episode was maybe a little bit over an hour, completely talked about Juneteenth, nothing else. It's jam-packed with history facts jewels and gems but we have other things in addition to juneteenth that is just as important that we need to discuss in this episode so mr wilson unless there's something else that you would like to share about juneteenth we are going to move along with the outline i would say just encourage all the listeners out here please read reading is the most powerful tool that we have Get yes. out and read mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely so We know that we are currently living through a global pandemic. We are living through a civil unrest. There's a lot going on in the world right now. Um, The police brutalities and the murders of um, unarmed Black people recently has been at an all-time high. Let's talk about racism. Racism is something that has plagued this country, it seems like, for over 400 plus years now. Um, maybe before then, but to my knowledge, at least the last 400 years. What the, the hard part that I have with this is people not quite understanding exactly what racism is. So can you give the listeners, what is racism? What, how would you describe, define, break down actual racism to someone who does not believe racism exists? Mm, great question. Uh, first off, we have to start off with understanding, you know, the word racism and the suffix on the word ism. Mm-hmm. Any term that ends in ism is a type of belief system. Okay. You know, you have racism, communism, capitalism, you know, it's a belief system. So what racism is, this belief system in which the people who are in power basically can discriminate, disenfranchise, mm-hmm. uh, uh marginalized and basically put down people of a certain ethnic group of a certain racial group of a certain gender group um in order to perpetuate supremacy okay if you know if basically let's just go ahead and cut straight to the point so we're talking about black white here so it's basically Mm -hmm. just a goal of maintaining white supremacy Mm -hmm. pretty much so um Again, and that's the really important thing about, you know, uh, people need to understand about racism is to maintain that idea of the status quo, uh, to maintain so that group in power can remain in power. And they do that by discriminating, again, marginalizing, uh, uh, putting down people of a lesser race. Is there a difference between racism itself and systemic racism. And there's been a lot of talk about the systemic racism mm-hmm. that affects um, black people, people of color, African-Americans, um, especially more than any other race. Is there a difference between racism and systemic racism for those who may not know what that is? Um, yes, a- another great, great question. And let me entertain what uh, systematic race racism is. Um, I think brother... Stokely, Stokely Carmichael, Carmichael uh, mm-hmm. characterized it. Yeah, Stokely Carmichael. I'm sorry, I can't talk. Must be nervous here. Characterized <laughs> this as institutional racism, and mm-hmm. basically, kind of what what that is 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 
is hitting, is interwoven in, in fabric, it's, it's interwoven in, you know, uh, economic, social, and political. And it basically rears its ugly head in the fashion that basically we are not allowed opportunities for certain jobs. Uh, and say, for instance, the grandfather clauses back in the day that basically said that, OK, well, you can't vote if your grandfather didn't vote. Well, you know, we may be right. talking about when basically African-Americans first came out of slavery. Of course, my grandfather didn't vote. So that right. disqualifies me. Um, and <laughs> of course, if my grandfather didn't vote, then I can't vote. So my children can't vote because my father didn't vote, which would be their grandfather. So that that's an example of that institutionalized racism. It's also um, economic, and we still kind of see that going on nowadays, where uh, certain people of color are not afforded loans. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, and it gets beyond your credit score. A lot of times, a lot of times, you know, they just look at the color of your skin, and they uh, will decide whether to service you or not, just based upon that. Um, a political racism. Basically, you being disenfranchised from being associated or necessarily not associated with a particular political party. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's very much uh, intertwined. And I guess what people need to understand is it's covert. It's not mm-hmm. very much open. You know, it's, it's, it's hidden. You know, it's the fact like, OK, I applied for a job. I didn't get the job. OK, well, why? Why didn't I get the job? Well, I really don't know. But. Um, basically, it may be a bias that somebody in HR had. Um, you know, they may have looked at my resume and pretty much looked at, oh, well, he went to Howard University, so let's just assume that he's black, so we don't necessarily want him. So it's mm-hmm. things that go on behind the scenes that we don't know. And that is that institutional racism that's so prevalent. Again, it's interwoven in all aspects of the fabric of America. It really is. It affects everything. I think it does. For me, I was born in the mid eighties. My mom was born in the fifties. My grandmother was born in the thirties. So they have seen, you know, racism um at, at the forefront of their lives. They've been they lived through segregation and things like that. Segregation and Jim Crow compared to now, how would you describe what we are currently living through compared to what they experienced decades ago? Mm. You know, I'm going to quote and paraphrase a little bit what Brother Will Smith said about kind of what's going on now. And basically, when Will Smith essentially said that racism always existed, it's just now being being recorded, that it's not, Mm. it's just all Mm -hmm. being recorded. And I think it's definitely always been there. Um, And Jim Jim Crow, Black Codes, all of those things were put in place to keep people down. Um, and one mm-hmm. thing I definitely will do throughout this podcast today is basically I would like to kind of plant seeds of different authors and books that I really encourage Absolutely. Uh, listeners to go out and read. And one of the really good, powerful books was by Sister Michelle Alexander entitled The New Jim Crow. Um, okay. So probably some of your listeners have gone out and, and, and read that, but it was published uh, about, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. But in the book, uh, Alexander talks about how basically that systematic racism, uh, systemic, I'm sorry, systemic racism is is interwoven in the fabric. For instance, if a you're a person of color 
and you go to jail for whatever reason. Once you come out, uh, basically it's difficult for you to get a job uh, right. because you may have a felony conviction on your record. It's different, difficult for you to secure housing because mm-hmm. you have a felony record. It's difficult for you to do a myriad of things. Um, and even going, you can't vote. So that's another big piece. So, you know, if you can't vote, it's a domino effect with that means if you're not voting, that means you're not able to serve on a jury, uh, which is one of your civic duties as an American citizen. Mm -hmm. And there are also other plans in place where, and you know, I learned this through, uh, Ms. Alexander's book is about basically some, uh, housing projects and living quarters will not allow you to live there if you have felony convictions on your record. So let's right. say that my mother lives in a subdivision or a apartment complex. If I'm just getting out of jail, I can't even go live with my mother because I have a conviction, a felony conviction. Right. So again, so the question becomes, so what do these young men and women do? Of course, the natural thing is, well, I can't get a job. I can't work. I can't vote. I really don't have no place to live. So it kind of turns you back to the life of crime. So it's very mm-hmm. difficult to get out of those 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 holes, so to speak. And a lot of our brothers and sisters are finding themselves in those situations and it gets gets dangerous. So um, when we talk about Jim, Jim Crow, Jim Crow is still very much alive and well today. Um, and I think basically the only thing that's helping us battle these old Jim Crow laws and these old black code laws and this institutional racism is a lot of times now that we're be able, we're seeing the acts of discrimination now because of camera phones and things being recorded and uh, <laughs> podcasts and microphones and people speaking and just the wealth of information. So unlike mm-hmm. uh, Juneteenth, it's not going to take us two and a half years to get the news anymore. We'll get the news exactly. in two and a half minutes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I see that when we do record these um, unfortunate circumstances that sometimes we find ourselves or our sisters or our brothers in, I see that a lot of people don't agree with the recording of these incidents. They feel like if you are helping them instead of recording, then maybe you could have saved that person's life. But I'm like, at the end of the day, you need proof of what happened to that person. So I'm always telling my kids, listen, if you're out somewhere, if you're not with me and your dad, you need to make sure that you have proof of what's going on and where you are. So I definitely encourage us to continue to record these um, hostile situations. Hopefully we will see a decline in them and we can get um, some things in place to protect us from police brutality and different things and racism. But until then, it's important to record. I don't see why people will tell us not to record. That makes absolutely no sense to me. But Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, again, and, you know, if we really want to talk about this, you know, uh, institutional racism, uh, Again, by denying us the ability to record incidents Mm -hmm. in our communities, it's Mm -hmm. like basically trying to control our our narrative. Absolutely. uh, Basically, we want to be able to tell our stories because basically so many years, not so many years ago, but there have been times where basically uh, black folks did not have a voice. They Mm -hmm. could not speak up. Um, Mm -hmm. It really uh, makes me think about... um, my man in St. Louis, oh my gosh, his name just jumped out of my head. 
uh, he and his wife who sued for his freedom, uh, Dred Scott, Dred Scott. Can't believe I, <laughs> I had a brain pause. But yeah, Dred Scott, basically when you know, his slave owner took him across state lines into a freed slave state. So Dred realized that, hey, I'm in a free state. I should be able to you know, take you to court for my freedom. And Dred uh-huh. went to a United States court of law and the court told him that, no, you're a black guy. You don't have no rights to be in this court. You, mm. you, you're not a citizen. You're not a person. You have no rights. So, you know, again, allowing them to control that narrative is 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 really important. And again, that gets into the difference between then and now. Then it was a pretty much very much open in your face, you know, racism. Uh, today, it, it's a lot, like I said, more covert. I'm sorry, covert, and it's interwoven into that fabric of our society. It truly is. So that's going to shift us into the next part of this racism conversation, which is white privilege. Um, I think we as a people, we as a culture understand clearly what white privilege is, but it seems to me, and not all, but there are some um, people, non-people of color who don't believe white privilege is a thing. They think it's a false narrative that we have made up, um, that it doesn't exist, mm-hmm. that it's something that um, has been completely um, fantasized and romanticized. But white privilege, in my opinion, is real. It is alive. Um, and how do you define white privilege? Because I see so many people day after day say that it's not real. It's something that black people have made up. Yeah. <laughs> Another great question. I'm loving it. But yes, white privilege is basically when somebody of white skin complexion receives benefits, rights, uh, advantages and other resources that are afforded to them that are not necessarily afforded to people of color. And again, mm-hmm. if you want to keep this thing black and white, it's basically when whites are receiving different premiums and privileges that are strictly attached to their whiteness. Um Again, it's and I'm pretty sure if I can speak freely here, uh, I'm pretty sure we've all had situations where we've gone into stores or mm-hmm. gone into car dealerships or, you know, any place. And basically, as a person of color, you go in, you may not be necessarily uh, spoken to or addressed and say, hey, can I help you? Or is there anything you're looking for? Um, right. Whereas somebody of the white complexion will go in and, you know, they readily run up to them. Hey, how you doing? You know, how you doing? Can I help you find something? Um, so, yes, that's pretty much what that white privilege is. It's just those premiums and privileges and advantages that basically that whites are afforded simply based upon this color of their skin. And let me also say this, too, that many white people don't realize it's it's a privilege to them because they it's just there they've always had it so they've never not had it and that's what i was going to ask you next yeah that was what i was going to ask you why do you why do so many of non-people of color white people specifically think that white privilege is a false narrative they think it's something that doesn't exist and so like you said it's because it's something that's always been there it's all they know pretty much is what you're saying okay absolutely It's, it's it's always been there it's always been there for them um Again, it's like we always say, you don't know what being hungry is and living on the streets unless you've been hungry and lived on the streets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. to describe homelessness and being hungry to somebody who's never been homeless or hungry 
is extremely difficult. They, you know, don't understand. And uh, yeah, basically, pretty much, it's just been a part of their life. Uh, they don't, don't understand it because a lot of them, again, getting back to racism and those people in power because they are the people in power. So, you know, anything done by people who are not in power or, uh, uh, I guess, concerns of people who are not of the same status quo of them, and it becomes unimportant, you know, uh, uh, they just dismiss it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So... Okay. With that being said, what would you say? Let's see. Where are we? So that denial stems from it always being there. And so do you think because it's always been there, that's why they're having a hard time accepting that Black Lives Matter? Because that's a whole different conversation. But I think it ties into the same thing. Because when we say Black Lives Matter, they say all lives matter. And all we're saying is that, yes, all lives do matter. But we want ours to matter, too. It doesn't mean that yours doesn't matter or that yours is more important than mine or that mine is more important than yours. We, do, we want ours to matter just as yours does. So do you think that white privilege always being there, something that they are born into, they've never had to think about it, second guess it, it's the reason why when we yell Black Lives Matter, their counter is All Lives Matter. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's that's a perfect way of redirecting or trying to change our narrative or try to mm-hmm. uh, belittle something or discount something that, we believe in and again you know remember the whole idea of racism is trying to maintain that status quo so right. basically if you want to remain in power uh you don't want to give anybody a leg up to say that okay hey now we're equal you know okay well now that we're equal uh okay we have to i have to give you the same opportunities i'm, I'm afforded to i'm have to give you the same resources i'm i'm awarded and uh, uh basically again it's just that way of um, redirecting the, the conversation. And I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, basically that's kind of one of my thing about people say, oh, well, all, all lives matter. Yes, we do. We're not saying that all lives don't matter. All lives do matter. However, basically when we look at this, all lives are not the ones that are under fire right now. It's the Absolutely. Black lives yes. Black, people, mm-hmm. black brothers and sisters who are under fire. And, yes. you know, and in that same conversation, it's like, you know, you hear a lot of times uh, white people will say, oh, you're playing the race card mm. um, and or you're being divisive. And that's, again, I think another way of trying to redirect the focus. I mean, you know, you can't tell me how I feel. You can't mm-hmm. uh, you can't dictate to me kind of my thoughts and my experiences are my experiences. And you can't take that away from me. So, you know, I, I think another thing, you know, again, getting back to controlling our own narrative and being able to tell our own story really, uh, you know, ties into that. And, you know, another thing I just want to talk to you about, too, is, you know, I hate when people say, oh, I don't see color, you know, and racism. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. You know, and I oftentimes remind people, I say, well, if you don't see color, then you don't see me and you just want to ignore uh, 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 the inequities or the injustices or my mm-hmm. history, you know, right. that, that's going on. You know, because yeah, we need people to see color. Yeah, we need people oh, to absolutely. see color. Mm-hmm. A- absolutely. And, you know, we all are different. Yes, that's what makes us great people. 
But again, you know, we all need to recognize the differences in our cultures and we all need to embrace them. And we mm-hmm. all need to, again, like I said, recognize them and know that everybody's story is about. Absolutely. That's so true. With the Black Lives Matter movement, um, which has been at the forefront of our news and our timelines um, more recently because of what we as a culture, we as a people have been experiencing with the police as of late, um, there's been many protests. Um, The kids and I participated in a peace walk a week ago in Chesapeake. It was a two and a half mile walk from... um, our head church to the city hall. And it was beautiful. Like when, as we were walking, I was just thinking about, you know, my grandmother and the stories that she would tell me about her mom who was born in the 1800s and just thinking about our ancestors. And it was such a beautiful experience with all the protesting that's happening now. What, what does it feel like to you as a black man living through this time when you see hundreds and sometimes thousands of people gathering for one cause, which is just us wanting to be treated fairly for equality. We're literally marching against the injustices that we have been facing and we just want to be treated fairly and we want to be treated equally. How does that make you feel as a black man in America to see that on display so vividly and so brightly? It makes me feel great. It really does. I mean, uh, because and getting back to one of your earlier questions about, you know, why is this boom like hit the forefront now? And I think because, again, everybody has awakened. Everybody is, again, seeing visually real time these inequities and this disenfranchisement of, you know, African-Americans in this country. So I think mm-hmm. it's, it, it's a loud power crowd. Um, and one thing I'm glad that the young people are getting involved in these marches and these protests, because a lot of times, you know, they see it in a history book. They see it about mm-hmm. it in a YouTube video. They see about the, uh, the march on Washington. They right. see about the march from Selma to Montgomery. They read about the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, but to actually take part and be a part yes. of the protest mm-hmm. and, and, and be there, I, I think is, is very important. Um, and I think really, I always often remind people too, is kind of keep in mind, like it's a protest, not a party. Absolutely. And I'm going to go online and say that. And I like to remind young people, it's not about going out there, uh, Snapchatting, Instagram, TikToking, and sending that out to see how, how many followers you can, you know, have based upon, oh, I'm on, on scene, I'm on location at, um, wherever I am uh, in order to try to build hype. Yes, that's very important, but I really need the young folks to really encourage them to really focus on your mission there and um, Mm -hmm. think about why you're there. And Mm -hmm. uh, always kind of, even when I was coming up, always kind of reminding myself when I was in situations like that, like imagine if a news crew comes up to you and Mm -hmm. asks you to talk about why you're out here. You know, you should be able to give them a very definitive answer and Absolutely. a very uh, uh, st- straight answer, and basically, and it should be passionate. You yes. know, um, and uh, again, and the other piece I'm gonna say I love with this happening now is again, young folks get to take part in it. Uh, mm-hmm. Back in 1995, I, I was able to participate in, in the Million Man March. Wonderful awesome. demonstration, right? Coming together. 
by millions and millions and millions of black men loved it. And, the, you know, the, the big thing is, you know, final piece is with the young folks, I tell them when you are part of that, you're part of history. So when you Absolutely. sit down with your kids, you can say, hey, I participated in these protests. And That's literally what I told my girls. That's literally what I told them. Yes. I said, you guys, us being a part of this peace walk, us being a part of this protest and demonstration is literally us being a part of history. I say in the future, mm-hmm. you'll be able to tell your children, your grandchildren, you know, Lord willing, your great grandchildren that you participating in the life changing events of 2020. You helped shift the culture. You helped change the world. Mm-hmm. And so that was really what I was speaking to them as we were marching um, last week. Yes, yes. And I mean, it's, it's important, important just to move forward um, thinking about those things because now we're beginning to plant the seeds and start these grassroots efforts. And, you know, what people need to realize, like even the Black Lives Movement organization, they're like uh, like less than 10 years old. So it's still right. relatively new. I think they uh-huh. came around like 2013, I believe, 2013, yeah. 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so and it's really, uh, I, I guess, uh, refreshing to see young faces behind that movement, just like in the 60s, you know, right. you had young civil rights activists pushing forward. Um, so it, it's 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 a wonderful time. And I think great opportunities for many young people to get involved and not just with the protest piece, but get involved and know what your civic responsibilities are as a citizen, you know, so mm-hmm. that you can not just go out and protest for change and beg for change and ask for change, but go out and be a facilitator of that change. That's what, that was going to be my next question to you. As we decree and declare to the world that Black Lives Matter, what are the next steps that we can take? What are our action steps? What are some tips and tools that you can give us moving forward that will help us propel this forward? Um, one of the things is, you know, first comes to mind, I think we need to hold our elected representatives accountable. We need yes, to hold sir. them to the fire. Yes, sir. <laughs> and, you know, Everybody always said, yeah, well, go vote, go vote, go vote. Yes, but when you go into the booth and you cast your ballot and you vote, that's just not enough. Right. Basically, you need to follow up. Our Congress people, our elected representatives, they have email addresses. They have Mm -hmm. telephone numbers. I mean, Mm -hmm. basically contact them, hold them accountable. Basically, uh, I kind of compare them to people that we pay money to. I mean, Mm -hmm. basically, we don't physically give them money. But what we do in taxes sort of kind of, but basically when you vote for them, you're putting them in power, you're keeping them employed. So your Mm -hmm. vote is like money. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's the first thing, just getting out and and making sure our votes count. And a lot of times some of the politicians who are in these positions, some of them have been in office for a while. And I think they're beginning to take the black vote for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think as the younger people come in, they're realizing that a lot of their voting base is dying off. Right. So basically, they're gonna need to get out here and <laughs> basically encourage or 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 uh, basically convince young young voters why they should elect them or why they should continue to keep them. In, in, in office. So I, I think that's that's the first step is holding these people accountable and going out and voting. 
Um, the second step is, I, I know a lot of people probably not going to want to hear this, but serve on jury duty. Okay. I will tell you this. <laughs> I uh, basically served on jury duty. Uh, and my concern with being selected, because I kind of thought it was an honor. I don't know. Maybe that's the teacher in me, uh, the history <laughs> teacher, and wanting to do the civic duty. But probably say more than half of the people that were selected to serve on a jury with me were busy trying to get out of jury duty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think and I mentioned jury duty as being very important because basically, you know, when they say you're going to be judged by a jury of, a your, jury peers, of your peers. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when we look at a lot of these uh, <laughs> cases that are going to court, uh, the George Floyd uh, for his for the officer that murdered him, uh, I'm sure that will be a jury trial. And right. basically, if there's no people of color on that jury, then, mm-hmm. you know, basically that's that's a concern. And we're going to footnote that because we can talk about some cases in the past uh, where basically murderers have got off for killing African-Americans. That's true. Uh, yes. But mm-hmm. I think just serving on a jury and doing that and trying to, you know, voting one. And then when you get the uh, juror questionnaire in the mail, Complete it, complete it and online. Send it back, right? Fill it out and send it back. Yeah, so you get selected because that that is your civic duty, you know. And again, we can't complain about the justice system and say, oh, well, they're locking up more black males. And they're, well, if you're not there sitting on a jury because you don't know who who's sitting on the jury unless you're on the jury, and you never know, you may be that deciding voice to tip the scale to make a difference. That's very um, true. I had never thought about it in that context, but that's very true. Yeah. And the last thing I'm going to say is keep the fire. Okay. Yes. We're out here protesting. Keep the fire. Don't let the flame die out. Mm-hmm. All right? A lot of times, you know, you see a lot of hype uh, behind a lot of movements. Mm-hmm. And, um, I guess in order to facilitate any type of change, you need more than just a short-term movement. You know, like I heard somebody say, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So again, (laughs) you know, and I think a lot of it is is because we're going through this COVID-19 piece. So I think a lot of people have a little more free time on their hands because some people are not going to work. But let me encourage people when society gets back to some sense of normalcy, Mm-hmm. We have to continue this fight. We still need yes, to be out do. there protesting. Right. You know, uh, I don't want to hear people say, well, I got to work today. Uh, I was protesting all summer because I wasn't working, but now I'm working it. Okay, well, if you can't give with your time, you can give with uh, some other resource. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you can send somebody on your behalf. Maybe mm-hmm. you can donate or give money to uh, a fund to keep things going. Hell, even if it's going out buying a case of water and dropping it off with, with the protesters before they go out. I mean, little right. things like that really do help. So, uh, and those are the things I say. So we just have to stay encouraged and keep pushing forward. Yes, all of those things that you mentioned matter. They all add up. And we have to keep the same energy that we have now when the seasons change, when the years change. We have to keep the same energy. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, we 
talk about, you know, we'll always go back to the civil rights era with, uh, when we had Dr. King, uh, Stokely Carmichael, Andrew Young, Malcolm X, mm-hmm. all these guys, I mean, they worked tirelessly. They I mean, did. I'm pretty yeah. sure it's a lot of times those brothers and sisters did not get, get any rest. Right. And again, you know, and we have to always think about the sacrifices that they made, that they gave so that we could have the freedoms and the rights and the privileges that we have today. That's so very true. Mm -hmm. And the sacrifices that their families gave as well, because they literally were out here on the on the main lines for us and their families were home. They did this with, with, you know, spouses and with children. So their families also gave a lot in order for them to be on the civil rights activists that we know them today to be. So we're so thankful Mm -hmm. to them and their families for their sacrifice. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it, 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 it goes without saying, and, you know, I just wanted to kind of tie back into, you know, we talked, well, kind of getting into, the Black Lives Movement matter about kind of how it came about because of these killings of unarmed, in many cases, unarmed people of color. Mm -hmm. You know, just the senseless killing and the lack of holding those people accountable. Accountable, right. Did those killings. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's so important. I mean, you know, right now we talk about Brother George Floyd, whose death really kind of... uh, uh, really push this Black Lives Movement, uh, Black Lives Matter movement forward in a huge matter. Uh, we had Rashad Brooks in Atlanta, um, mm-hmm. Sandra Bland, Breonna Taylor, yeah. Uh, yeah. and even going back, uh, basically uh, John Crawford, Ezo Ford, Philando Castile. You know, mm-hmm. we, we've lost a lot of people here, and it's something that these young people can identify with. But Absolutely. Again, kind of one of the things if we understand our history and we know our history and we've read our history, that's why I encourage people to read. Basically, <laughs> the same thing was happening back in the day, too. We were losing people, but we didn't have a voice as strong right. as it is today. So right. today we have a voice. And back in the day, you know, and I would say when I was teaching African-American studies, one of the most powerful pieces I ever got out of my students was showing him a picture of Emmett Till. Okay. In his casket. I can't imagine because when I first saw um, the picture of him in his casket, I can't remember exactly what age I was when I was first introduced to um, his story, but I just remember looking like, how could someone do that to someone else? It, it was almost like it felt unreal that someone could actually do that to another human being. And it really set things and it really put things into perspective for me and set things into motion of what we as black people face in this country. Right. Absolutely. Um, You know, the story of Emmett Till, that was very tragic. The uh, story of, of, of Mac Parker. And Mm -hmm. uh, for those of y'all know, Mac Parker was a brother who was accused of rape. And he was lynched, and basically the people who were accused of lynching him were taken to court, and they were all acquitted. They were white mm-hmm. males, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you got the story of James Cheney, and you know James Cheney was out there just doing his civic duty, trying to register people to vote in Mississippi during the Freedom Summer uh, of 1964. He was killed, 
you know, killed for shot several times. Um, right. You had Bobby Hutton. You know, everybody knows Bobby Hutton. He was killed by the Oakland Police Department back in the mm-hmm. day. Again, nobody was held uh, accountable. And um, last but not least is Mecca Evers. You know, he was right. shot and killed in his driveway. And basically his killer went to court. But again, getting back to that jury piece, the jury was deadlocked. So right. his assassinator got off. So again, you know, we have a lot of commonalities in our history. But again, and this is why I really encourage young people to, you know, read your history, understand, mm-hmm. understand your history so mm-hmm. that you know how to combat this. Um, right. Yeah, go, go, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh no, that was great. Um, all especially I get I guess putting the names there really painted a picture of how long this has been going on. Police brutality did not start with um with George Floyd. It did not start with uh, a, a Tatiana Jefferson. It did not start with Breonna Taylor. This is something that we have been dealing with for decades, and it's something mm-hmm. that now is finally getting the attention that it needs to correct it and to change that type of behavior um, with our police concerning black people. I was sharing with my children the other day, well, yesterday actually, because it was the five year anniversary of the um, killings in South Carolina at the Emanuel Mm -hmm. Church. And I said, you know, I just don't understand how the police could escort this young man I'm going to call him a white supremacist to their police car. He was he left unharmed without a scratch. They got him food from a local burger. I don't understand it. People are quick to say police need more training. They need more training. I don't believe it's a lack of training. I think it's a lack of empathy and a lack of compassion for people of color. Because if you can export this man from the scene who killed innocent people while they were in Bible study, then why shoot a black man that's unarmed? Like, what is what is the cause for that? What is your reason for that? So I don't think it's a lack of training. I think it's a lack of empathy and a lack of compassion and a lack of just sometimes just not being a good person. We have to know who we're putting in these positions. And I think that they need to take a more serious and in-depth look at who they are allowing to become police officers because this needs to be more than just a six-week boot camp training and then you're a cop. This needs to be a little bit something more aggressive to make sure that our our local officers who hold badges are really there to protect and serve and to do that for everyone, not just protect and serve one group of people or one culture, but to protect and serve all of us and to treat all of us equally and fairly. Absolutely, indeed. I, I, I agree with you totally together. And, you know, again, and that gets back to kind of my piece where I talk about, you know, we have to hold these people accountable. We have to hold right. these city council people accountable. Exactly. Um, you know, uh, basically our Commonwealth attorney, for those mm-hmm. listeners who live in the Commonwealth of Virginia, all of your Commonwealth attorney positions are elected positions. You know, they're they not are. appointed. So, again, you know, going in to, you know, vote for people or put people into power who are, of course, one, going to keep our streets safe. But to also, you know, protect us. And, you know, it kind of makes me think about and we probably all need to sit down. I think one of the great things that can come out, come out of this Black Lives Matter movement is mm-hmm. maybe we can come up with a set of community standards mm-hmm. kind of what we need. Like mm-hmm. these are the things that we need. And every community will probably differ a little bit because every right. community doesn't necessarily need the same things. But 
Yeah, and uh, uh, basically we need to come together and probably start those conversations so that uh, we can begin to see some change. And uh, we can see changes economically, socially, and politically. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I work for an elected official. So that part about, uh, first of all, <laughs> voting and then making sure that we hold our elected officials accountable is so important to me because I work for an elected official. So um, I hold that very mm. near and dear to my heart that the work that I do is important and the work that I do is fair um, to everyone in this city that we service. So um, that's just such great information that you share with the listeners Every episode, we do a segment called So I Saw a Meme. And typically, I'm just like scrolling through my social media and I'll find a meme that really resonates with the topic that we're discussing. And so when I saw this one, I was like, okay, this I have to include this one in this, in this segment. The meme read, George Floyd isn't a wake-up call. The same alarm has been ringing since 1619. Y'all just keep hitting the snooze button. When I saw that, it really stood out to me because it's true. Like I mentioned a few moments ago, police brutality isn't something new. It's finally something that we're actually voicing our opinions on. It's finally something that we're standing up to. It's finally something that we are saying we're not going to tolerate this anymore. But it's been something that has been lingering for entirely too long. And I think for the most part, and I'm going to even speak for myself on this, we've been hitting the snooze button and we've been asleep during these tragic events. But now I think we are awake, our eyes are wide open, and that we are ready to fight the good fight. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that is, that. that's so, so true. And I mean, and it's kind of ironic, like you remember a couple of, maybe a couple of months back, maybe even a year ago, the the phrase was oh, to be woke or stay woke. And you have these people who are quote unquote woke. But, mm-hmm. you know, again, and I, I used to tell my students, I was like, it's a lot of people who claim they woke, but they still sleep at the wheel. They still asleep. You know? Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are. They are. And um, basically, yes, this has been going on for years. I mean, since the arrival of Europeans into Africa. You know, mm-hmm. basically with, uh, you know, even not just uh, not just uh, Portuguese, but you had the Spanish, you had the mm-hmm. French, you had the Belgians. All those people went into Africa and they extracted, you know, residents of that continent. Right. And, you know, basically so this 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 these injustices against Africans and African-Americans and people of color have been going on for years. Even if you take it back, like I said, I mentioned all the names earlier about uh, Mac Parker, James Chaney, Emmett Till, Mega mm-hmm. Evans. I mean, mm-hmm. we can even talk about Nat Turner. Nat Turner was another one. I mean, we can talk about know, Nat Turner, and, yes. <laughs> yes. And I mean, so basically a lot of this has has really been going on. Um, and one of the focuses that and when I did teach African-American studies when I talked about the Harlem Renaissance, you talked about all these great writers and people mm-hmm. who were putting out uh, uh, works uh, like readings and literature and songs talking about the uh, the injustices happening to African-Americans in this country. And one of the other, give, give you a little book shout out here, something if you have not read it already, but uh, the title of the book is Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. 
And I'm pretty mm. sure a lot of your readers have read that. That's a really deep book. Um, throw another shameless plug out here. That's my brother from Howard University. It's okay. <laughs> so, yeah, but in that, Brother Coates really talks about those uh, uh, in, injustices, but he does it in a way for those people who haven't read it. I'm not going to spoil the book for you, but he's telling it as a uh, through writing as a letter to his son. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, he talks about some of the same things about violating the body and protecting the body and basically how we as black people live in fear. And it's it's so deep, but I love the way that it's so eloquently written, you know, but a a lot of people need to realize it basically comes from uh, the way it's written from James Baldwin's uh, Fire Next Time. So again, I'm pretty sure a lot of your listeners have probably read James Baldwin's Fire Next Time, but I encourage those who have not, pick it up, beautiful read. Um, yes. And those who have read it, I always encourage people to pick them up, read again. Read it again. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, read it again. And because you begin to see a lot of these parallels of what these brothers were talking about back then still come out uh, 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 today. I mm-hmm. basically just picked up uh, Zora Neale Hurston's book, Barracoon. And I'm about to reread that again because it's, it's just so many pieces in there uh, with all this literature of things that have been going on but so much of our history is written in books and unfortunately what i try to encourage a lot of our young people is like hey everything is not going to be on a youtube video right right Um, and there was this this saying once and i absolutely despise it but i already know what you're going to say something (laughs) if you want to keep something from a black person put in a book but in the book, yeah, you know, I despise that scene too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's just so you know, and I always ask people. So you say I'm we're we're not reading, but again, right. yes, it's, it's it's so many pieces out there. And um, getting back to Brother Coates' book between the world and me, a lot of people didn't know. I know some of your listeners may know that that was a poem written by Richard Wright. And I encourage all your listeners, if you have not read that poem, go out and read that poem, because that poem is definitely talking about what's going on right now. Mm. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's so much work out there. So a lot of us, yes, have been hitting the snooze button because uh, we want to claim we're woke, but we're not woke. We're not looking at and listening to what history has kind of given us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always tell people Like, hey, Trayvon Martin was killed. What did we learn from that? Right. Oh, next thing, Michael Brown got killed. What did we learn from that? Mm -hmm. So, again, I just kind of encourage people like, yo, you all want to tell me you woke, but we're having some of these same reoccurring problems. And, yes, everybody has the fight and has the fire, and we'll go protest for a little bit. But then after that, that fire goes out. And, you know, and that's, again, getting back to why the beautiful thing about the current movement with uh, the current protests going on in the United States. It's unfortunate that another brother had to lose his life for it to get to this point. Absolutely. I think it's so valuable. So I think people have finally woke up now. Mm -hmm. And to put it in terms of the alarm clock, yeah, we can't hit the snooze button anymore. We 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 can't afford to. to Right. Yeah, no, we can't afford to hit the snooze button anymore. Yeah. You got to get up and do the work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Got to. Got to. 
Also, this has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about at the moment, but it's just something <laughs> that fell into my spirit. I think with our youth, with our young people, um, when they look at our history, they see so much trauma and they see um, all of the mm, the unfortunate events that our people had to endure from being enslaved to um, segregation. But there's also glimmers of hope within those stories. Like I was sharing with my kids when we celebrated 99th anniversary of Black Wall Street. I'm like, listen, yes, it may have gotten burned down to the ground, but look at how we were out there thriving. We had all of our own everything. Like we owned that area. It, was, it belonged to us. So I think if we include those stories in the um, more traumatic stories, it will kind of give our young people a more visual look at what exactly our people have gone through. We aren't just um, descendants of slaves, of the enslaved. We aren't just, you know, we are more than that. Our people, we're smart, we're innovators, we're creators. And I think that it's important to stress that as much as we stress the unfortunate scenarios as well. So that just is something that fell into my spirit as far as young people understanding the history of our people. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's so powerful. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you know, one of the greatest things that I learned from Howard University is kind of why I wanted to go to Howard University, because at that time it was Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. was Chocolate City. It was the Mecca. It was, yes. you know, everything was happening. Um, mm -hmm. And I really wanted to be a part of that. And again, I got to Howard and, you know, and I thought I was, for all intended purposes, woke. But yeah, mm -hmm. I was definitely asleep until I mm -hmm. got to Howard University and, you know, started engaging with different people, with different experiences and right. different scholars. And it, it was it was just really beneficial. But again, it was my encouragement that I needed. And one of my favorite professors at Howard Dr. Olive Taylor, she once told us, she said, you know what? She said, you will be the voice for the people who do not have a voice. Mm. And I've yeah. always kept that close to my heart because yeah. I always think, and she said, as an alumnus of Howard University, and I'll even extend this out to any HBCU, we are the voices for people who do not have voices. Mm -hmm. So again, we have to be the voice for George Brown. We have to be the voice for Philando uh, Castillo. We have to be that voice for Emmett Till. We have to be that voice for Dr. King. We have to be mm -hmm. that voice for Mega You know, we go on and on. But we Absolutely. have to be their voices. We do. We have to be their voices. Um, each episode, we plant a seed of lavender. And what we do is we take that one word and we plant it and we water it until it begins to take root and grow in our lives. And what I felt was appropriate for this particular conversation was empathy, as I mentioned a little bit earlier. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of others. Why is empathy so important during this particular time in our lives, in our nation, in our country? I think empathy is really important now because this is a time where we all need to come together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is a time where basically we are facing a common enemy and we are fully aware of who that enemy is and we need to come together. So we need to put aside our beats, put aside our vices, put 
put aside the things that we devalue that oftentimes divide us, you know, um, and basically come together so that we can sit down and begin to have these conversations that we need. So, again, that we can facilitate change. And that brings us to our affirmation. This week I chose I will be the change I wish to see. And you just said so that we can facilitate change. We have to be the change that we wish to see in the world. We have to demonstrate that daily in our lives so that we can show others what it looks like and what it has the potential to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's so true. Uh, Is there anything else that you would like to add to this timely and important conversation, Mr. Wilson? No, I just want to thank you again for having me on. Um, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And I hope that we have both planted a seed of encouragement. Uh, Maybe it's something you heard today that you want to go out and do your own research on. And Mm -hmm. again, I encourage you to to do that. to basically go and read a little bit more, pick up another book, do an internet search, because the information is out there. And again, just want to remind the listeners this, we have to tell our own narrative. We cannot yes, allow we anybody else to tell our narratives for us. Exactly. That's been happening for too long. Yes, I greatly appreciate you for joining me on this episode and helping me navigate these difficult but necessary conversations. You have been a gift. You have brought so many facts and gems and jewels and literature with you. I appreciate that. I know the listeners appreciate you you as well. So thank you so much, Mr. Wilson. Absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate you. All right, everyone, please take care of yourselves and each other. Until next, next time, peace and love.